Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert DeGruff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food, and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. Today we're joined by Ken Giller. He is a professor of plant production systems at Wageningen University and we'll be talking about a paper he wrote on regenerative agriculture from an agronomic perspective. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I wanted to begin with asking you a little bit about the history. Where does this term regenerative agriculture actually come from and why do you think it's having such a moment now? Yeah, maybe to give you a bit of background, Robert, I, I first heard about the term um, during a meeting with Unilever. I sit in an advisory board uh, on sustainable production with, with Unilever, the Sustainable Sourcing Advisory Board. And um, it's, a, it's a group of external people that, that helps uh, Unilever hold up what they're doing to the light and, and you know, to think together about the future. And uh, the discussion started to turn to regenerative agriculture. And as, a, as somebody working in agriculture, I'd never heard of this term. So I said, what, what's going on here? I think this is 2019. So uh, as a good academic, we went straight back and started uh, searching the academic literature, found virtually nothing. Started searching the internet and found it was just everywhere. Yeah, Regenerative agriculture was just coming at us from all corners. So started then and went into the, the, the academic literature and found out that it, the term actually originated with the Rodale Institute in the United States. And Robert Rodale was really seen as the father of organic agriculture. And that really started to confuse me. Yeah. So it begins actually in the Rodale Institute in the 1980s, but if with one of the fathers of the modern uh, organic agricultural movement, but if you look at what it seems to represent today, it seems to have unmoored itself somewhat from those roots, uh, because the original thinkers looked at it more as a farm-focused system that tried to close the loops and reduce, if not zero out, its, its inputs. So what has regenerative agriculture become now instead of where it was in the past? The more I talk to people, I think there are a number of things which have led to this sort of coalescing around regenerative agriculture. One is, I think, for many of the companies, they feel they've been doing sustainable intensification, sustainable agriculture for quite a while, and, and they need something new. So it's something to do with a bit of new branding, if you like. But I think there's also, when you look at it, there are many NGOs. So the big conservation NGOs, World Wildlife Fund, the Nature Conservancy, many of these also aligning around regenerative agriculture. And it, it seems in a sense that everybody wants to do better. You know, sustainable agriculture is good, but we want to go one step further. And I think that's in a sense where some of, some of the, um, the energy in, uh, around regenerative agriculture is uh, coming from. 
in your perspective, what is the the better? What is the step above that regenerative offers apart from sustainable agriculture? People talk about the crisis in agriculture. Um, everything seems to come together around two things. Basically, the soil on the one side and the other is, is biodiversity and impacts on biodiversity. Um, many of the companies at the moment are scratching around really looking at what can we do in terms of um, our zero carbon commitment. So big companies, Nestle, Unilever, uh, PepsiCo, all of these companies are actually committing to zero uh, carbon in their food chains, in their supply chains uh, and production, everything by 2030. And when they look at where is that current CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, they trace, I mean, some companies say 70 to 90% of that actually to the to the farming end, to the production end. And that then swings back to what can we do about it? And I think it's seen that, that um, you know, locking up carbon in soil becomes very prominent in this debate. And in my view is potentially it's a bit dangerous because it could be oversold. Soil, certainly soil carbon storage is also having a moment. So is this part of a sort of formal set of regenerative agricultural practices or is it sort of co-associated with because it's very hard to find a sort of series of terminologies that actually fixes this is regenerative ag and this is something else sustainable sure. identification or organic or robert if you come to me asking to give you the ultimate definition of regenerative agriculture i'm afraid you're in the wrong place yeah? in in some ways I, I i would have wished the term never emerged but, but it's here, and I think we need to try and work with it because it's become so dominant. Yeah? Now, definitely, the soil, soil quality, soil health is very much at the centre of regenerative agriculture, I think, in nearly everybody's definition. And particularly, you know, you've got the organisations like the Carbon Underground, which are really talking about the uh, positive steps you can make to actually mitigate the global uh, carbon problem, the global warming problem, by locking up carbon in soil. Now, at first sight, I mean, obviously, improving soil organic matter, which is basically soil carbon, is a good thing. I mean, it's good for soil fertility. It gives you good, good tilth. It, it, it basically, you know, good soil structure. And that actually allows for, for good production. So I think that that's, it's got to be a good thing. But I would say primarily for those reasons. And I think it was when there, uh, some people came out and actually said, if we lock up carbon in soils, we can solve all of the problems of global warming. Then people said, okay, guys, sorry, this has gone a bit too far. And now we need to pull back and be more realistic because otherwise you, you lose credibility. Well, one of the things that always interests me about, certainly about the soil carbon storage question is how do you, how do you measure it? And certainly how do you then, certainly for a farmer, how do you make it something, how do you make it a revenue stream or something that they can process? Or is this something that is practically measurable, do you think? Well, very good point. And I mean, when I've, I've come into some of the discussions with different groups, with companies, I've heard people saying, you know, we increase soil carbon from one to three percent in two years or others claiming we can store 20 to 50 times the amount of carbon. And I say, hey, hey, come on. Uh, I think something's going wrong here. And they say, yeah, but we measured it. But what they've done often is that they've taken a sample of soil from the very surface. And if you go to zero till, for instance, all of your organic matter accumulates on the top of the soil. So you get a stratification of carbon. 
But actually, if you measure to depth, if you measure to 60 centimeters deep, you'll find actually hardly any difference in carbon under a zero-till or a non-zero-till practice. You're simply not mixing the soil anymore. So actually measuring is really quite difficult. People come up with all sorts of new measures of little spectral sensors. You can point at a soil sample and it gives you a measure of carbon in that sample. But it doesn't tell you how much carbon there is in the profile, because to do that, you actually need a very detailed analysis uh, in terms of sampling and then analysis. So if we're looking back at regenerative agriculture, do you feel that it it sort of combines a series of practices that we've talked about before in the agriculture world? Sustainable intensification is one that comes to mind to me, and that we've sort of added in this new societal political concern about soil and that sort of the new package is that what regenerative agriculture yeah. seems to be well i i think most of <clears throat> in, in our paper i mean what we tried to do is unpack this a bit and and if we think about the basic principles of regenerative agriculture that, that people talk about there are things like uh, reducing soil tillage maintaining soil cover improving soil carbon things that you think well great but also on the diversity side also thinking about um more diverse crop rotations you know potentially intercropping and the like um and then we have this issue of sort of reducing agricultural inputs and then i start to get a bit worried because on that principle everything is sort of put under one bucket agrochemicals are bad when I think, you know, there's a big difference between nutrients, which are essentially environmentally benign if they're used in the right way, and uh, pesticides, and there I mean herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, the whole, the whole lot, which are designed to, to kill things, to kill things selectively, of course, and preferably, you know, things that aren't hazardous to human health. But I think there is a big distinction between the pesticides and the fertilizers when, when we come to discussing how they should be used. Now, maybe <laughs> this is an important point to, to mention as well, that I don't really do much research in Europe, in European agriculture. All my work's focused in Africa. And there we're talking about soils which are completely degraded because farmers have been cropping year in, year out and putting nothing back. And there, if we want to go to a sustainable or regenerative agriculture, we don't want to reduce inputs. We need to increase inputs of nutrients, yeah? So I think for the whole debate, the starting point, where do you begin? You know, are you already actually doing most of these good practices and therefore you just need to reinforce them? Are you actually in a, in a space where you think, actually, things are going badly on my farm? You know, I, I do think I've got problems in the soil, therefore I need to change practice. And, and I think that issue of, of starting points is absolutely crucial to this debate and very, very often completely ignored. Is this discussion about regenerative agriculture, do you see it in, in Africa as well? Or is this really a Western-dominated something that arises out of think tanks and wherever it came from? We do start to see it coming up in Africa. But my concern there is that it seems to be driven by people from outside. So either companies or foundations or researchers saying, OK, you know, we need to use this new label as a way to promote our work or, or to you know, genuinely to rethink things. But, but it's not really something which is just coming endogenously. And I think we've got to be careful there to make sure that we're not imposing, if you like, then a European view on others. And we allow people to take on, if you like, the best of the concepts, but to articulate them in their own way. 
On the other hand, you could argue that given the broadness and the certain vagueness of regenerative agriculture, that the technologies or the practices contained therein are, are universal, or am I seeing this wrong? I think when we come back to this idea of principles, we, we could accept that. Yeah? The basic principles of good agricultural practice actually fit very, very much with what we talk about with regenerative agriculture. When it, we can, if you like, move from principles to actual practices, then what we find is people are looking at things like, like permaculture, yeah? um, like, I mean, cover crops, and I mean, cover crops are increasing the use in, in European agriculture. Um, but then things like this holistic rotational grazing, um, some aspects of agroforestry, which are, you could think of as being rather fringe, if you like, in terms of you know, the, the open field arable farming. You know, maybe we need to reduce from the very big fields down to smaller fields with more hedges. We have the benefits of biodiversity, you know, natural enemies in terms of predators for pests and the like. Um, but I think generally we've got to be careful that some of the things which are being promoted as, as practices are really a bit off the wall. You know, they're, they're right out there in terms of, of fringe approaches, which some farmers will do and will, will find useful, but they're not really things that can be expanded everywhere. So we have this list of slightly more fringe things, the high agroecology, the permacultures. Um, so these are things, do you think that they, under this label of regenerative agriculture, do you think at least in Europe they will take further root or will they remain on the fringe even under this new banner well i mean i think i think the what people what farmers will do i think sensibly is they'll they'll pick up the best and they'll pick up the things that work for them and um you know i i'm actually uh, um you know you, you'll have heard from my accent i hail from england i used to be at y college in kent and there uh, i actually was got got very interested in hedge laying wonderful old practice uh, multi-species diverse hedges. I've got a tiny plot here in, in uh, close to Wachening of a 0.3 hectare farm where we've got a few sheep and I've got a beautiful uh, a laid hedge uh, along the, uh, the edge which is full of birds and flowers and it's, uh, it's lovely. You know? So some of those things, sure, let's bring them back. And I think bringing back that interest into the countryside is something that, that we'd all want to do. Uh, I think though, the idea that uh, some of the idea of, of agroforestry, where people are talking about planting strips of trees within fields, then that becomes a bit more difficult because obviously then you've got to worry about mechanization and how you fit mechanization around those new configurations. Although there is interest in, in more of this idea of strip cropping and experimenting with some of these other uh, uh, ideas, which again, they're not necessarily new ideas. They're ideas which are, in a sense, coming back into fashion, I think. When we're talking about mechanization, it leads me to what I find an interesting point about regenerative agriculture is that I think in contrast to its roots in, in the organic movement, um, regenerative agriculture as a broad term seems to be much more accepting of or even demanding the need for much more technological applications, fine-tuned machinery, all that kind of stuff. Is this, do you think this is part of what makes it more attractive and more broadly used? I, th I, think, I think this is a really good point because if you take two of the um, principles, if you like, around regenerative agriculture, you know, one of them is minimizing tillage. The second is minimizing uh, pesticide use. 
If you don't till, what do you do about the weeds? Yeah. So zero till systems are generally highly dependent on the use of, of herbicides like glyphosate to actually control weeds. If we ban herbicides and we ban tillage, we're going to have really a huge problem of management. And what you see is also in the organic movement I've seen here in the Netherlands now, with uh, particularly with these smaller robots and, and smaller machines that can be used, um, a real opportunity there for mechanical weeding without actually deep tillage, yeah? so modified forms of tillage, which can again help to reduce the need for um, for chemicals, if you like, for herbicides. So I think that there is new work being done there, which is bringing, if you like, the best of new technologies. So small robots, you know, and, and with insects, people are talking about drones being used or targeted spraying, you know, to re in, in more integrated pest and disease management approaches. So I think there's a there's a, an opportunity of technology there, and particularly small scale technology. Um, and self-steered GPS-driven robots, you just set them off in the field and they do the weeding for you. Sounds fantastic. Yeah? It certainly sounds fantastic. It also sounds quite expensive, uh, certainly for, for, for a lot of farmers. Well, I think this is one of the biggest problems where you hear people talking about the need for a, a transition. You know, we need this fundamental transition of our production systems to, to new forms of agriculture. We can't take, we have to take into account, if you like, the capital costs and the depreciation costs of, of switching from existing machinery to other types of, of machinery. And, you know, how farmers or, you know, if, if this is something that society is demanding, how can then support be given to actually facilitate that, that transition? And um, yeah, because we're talking about completely different type of, of machinery where in the past things have tended to go to bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's, you know, less operators, large areas. We've got farms in Australia where basically you've got one to two uh, full-time equivalents of labor running 10,000 hectare farms, you know, using these huge zero-till planters in a very efficient way in terms of use of energy and, um, and inputs. So, I mean, I think there is a, a, I mean, Europe's not on that scale or not completely on that scale. Some places you see very large fields, but I think that there is a, a move towards you know, looking for something a bit in between in terms of uh, scale of farming. All of this, though, the, the capital intensive, the reduction in labor, the applied technology, none of this sounds particularly useful, certainly in an African context, or am I not seeing that right? Well, I mean, they're the biggest, the biggest issues in many ways are the capital investment and, and investment both in terms of inputs in a given season, but certainly the longer term investment. And yeah, one of my biggest concerns in the work we do, and we work in many different, I've got work in I think, 16 different countries at the moment, is that with population growth there, we see increasing subdivision of farms. So farms are getting smaller and then uh, basically you know the farm area available to a, a household to a family is really not not sufficient to make what we call a living income from it you know this is something we see in in all sectors and i think it's something that's got to be a real concern because of course in europe we we do actually source a lot of our luxury products particularly you know the the, the, the cocoa the uh, the coffee the tea from small farms and, it, and and those producers are not necessarily getting a sufficient 
to drag them out of poverty at the uh, at the far end, or or to provide them with a, an income which means that they can educate their kids and uh, do all the things that they they need to do. You know, so I do think we have to be concerned not only and not not too introverted in terms of our vision of of you know new forms of agriculture, because they have to also uh, provide a decent income for people in the supply chains uh, in other countries as well. I wanted to briefly turn back uh, again to, to Europe because one of the things I noticed when I was reading your paper, and uh, we'll put a link to it in, in the show description so our, our listeners can, can read it for themselves, is that you do list some of the original practices and as we're talking now, no-till, less uh, inputs, all this stuff. It also it all sounds very familiar. Well, certainly all this stuff was in the former common agricultural policy. It's in the farm-to-fork strategy again now. It's in the new common agricultural policy. Is regenerative agriculture actually a new set of principles or are we really just putting uh, old wine into new bottles? Yeah, I'd hope in a sense it's a bit more than just a repackaging. Um, But I think some of the the fringe things, you know, we've got things like using more composts, compost tea. Um, You know, uh, some of those I, I think, you know, hopefully will be will be forgotten about fairly quickly because they're not really going to take us very far. Um, I think my my point would be, well, yeah, a lot of it is good agricultural practice. That means that, in a sense, we shouldn't be frightened of it in in terms of a terminology. It doesn't necessarily mean a a whole uh, complete shift in terms of practices. when I worked with Unilever, they had a sustainable agriculture code that they still use, and that means that supplies in their uh, in their chains, in their supply chains, uh, have to sign up to this code. And the code is basically about doing things better. So every year you have to have a plan on a whole range of different things of how you want to try and improve. And I think, in a sense, I'd always said, you know, sustainability is a journey. It's not an end point. And if this regenerative agriculture um, banner, if you like, helps us to bring together people to coalesce around that idea of a, of a better vision for agriculture without necessarily, you know, pointing fingers and telling people they're all doing things wrong, then I think it could be a, it could be useful um, for all, uh, all of the players, if you like. I mean, the danger, of course, in that could be is that if everybody comes on board and everybody agrees, well, the direction is good, better things, if you stop there and you don't attach and say, yeah, but this is how we're going to get there, then it just becomes greenwashing. Then it's just a marketing term. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> and and there are people who've been saying that already, that they see it as a, a big concern. It's just greenwashing. Maybe I could, maybe I put two other, two other things on the table. First of all, is the whole issue around uh, the use of gene editing yeah, uh, for um, crops and particularly gene editing for particular purposes. Now, we know in the Netherlands, there's been very good research done that shows that using gene editing, you could get potatoes which are resistant to late blight. Now, normally farmers have to spray 15 to 20 times, at least 15 times in a bad season uh, for a fungicide for late blight. Now, if you have a couple of different resistance genes in your uh, potato variety that you're growing, you can cut that down to one or none. Now, that's a point where I think um, using the best of biology, of genetic resistance, we can actually reduce the need for chemicals. 
And yet many people say, ah, oh, yeah, but gene editing, GMOs, we shouldn't be having that within our agricultural system. And I think for me, it, it depends on what the trait is that we're trying to put into our crop rather than the technique that we're putting it there that we should be worried about. And, you know, much of the concern about GMOs is about more about monopoly of, of genetic resources than really about the, the technology itself. So I really think that we should reopen that debate around gene editing. Um, the, the second point I'd like to put on the table is one relating to biodiversity, because nearly all the discussion of biodiversity uh, in the regenerative agriculture uh, debate is, is focused on on-farm diversity. But if we end up with some of these practices reducing productivity, and particularly taking land out of agriculture, which is also being discussed very much in the EU, and you're moving towards organic, which is going to mean a drop in productivity or, you know, putting more land aside for, uh, for nature in Europe. That basically means that our ecological footprint will be moved elsewhere. And I was in a discussion with people in the UK and they talk about offshoring, if you like, your environmental footprint. Now, for the rest of Europe, we don't use that terminology because you know, luckily we're not all in separate islands. But there is this issue about, you know, putting your ecological footprint elsewhere in the world. And I think that's something that we really have to be concerned about, that we, we have to think not only about what are the implications of what we're doing here in Europe for land, for biodiversity, for the environment in Europe, but also what are we then going to do in terms of pushing, if you like, more cutting down of the Amazon rainforest or more clearance of, of land in Africa? It does seem to be an important message that we can't allow ourselves to just simply push more productivity off onto Africa or South America. Well, sure. And we, <clears throat> we did a, an analysis looking at um, the trends in land area and productivity across the world and, and using very simple data. And you see there very much that, that the area of land under production in Europe and in North America has decreased uh, since over the past 50 years. Now, a lot of that's been taking less productive land out of agriculture and putting it over to forestry or nature which you can argue at, at the local level is a good thing. But if we really start to cut productivity in the more, uh, in the more productive agricultural areas, then that, that argument about our broader global footprint of consumption, and this isn't just about farmers, this is about all of us who are consuming the products being produced, of course, then we have to worry about our broader footprint in the world. If, if it were left up to you, are there any boundaries you would attach to it and say, I, if a farmer is doing X, Y, or Z, then by that, they cannot say, I am practicing regenerative agriculture. Are there, are there any useful boundaries that you would say, this is something that we should keep in mind? I really don't want to go there. <clears throat> um, in, in a sense, I really don't see my role as being a, a member of the control police, if you like. I mean, obviously, I, I guess, you know, if, if I'd had to say something, then, of course, if, if you've got bad soil erosion on the farm, and that's often caused by uh, uh, tractor tracks and, and, uh, and paths and roads being in the wrong place, and you're not doing something to try and, and, uh, and prevent that soil erosion, then, well, it's not going to be very good for you for the long term anyway. 
but then it would be hard, I think, to come under this banner of, of uh, 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 being regenerative. Yeah? Okay, let's let's flip the question around then. Are there certain practices you would say, well, if you're doing that, then it certainly is regenerative agriculture? You know, Robert, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be out there telling people what to do. I think there are enough people preaching from the sidelines, telling the farming community what they should do. And I think it's really, a, you know, my experience of when I've been out talking with farmers across the world is that people want to do the best for themselves, for their children, for for society. And I don't think, you know, I think we need to, for, for many of the public, we need to work on the image of, of, of farming to, to help people realize that, yeah, farmers are the custodians of the land and, and generally are doing their very best, both within the, you know, within the constraints of what's possible for them. And I think it's very much the looking across the world, the economic margins for farming is a pretty tough, actually, particularly on the smaller farms. And, um, you know, we need to basically, if we're going to push for uh, better practices, we have to bear the costs and share the costs as well. Well, uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you our last question, which is the same we ask of everybody who comes on the podcast, which is if you had one uh, policy idea or one practical suggestion to make the food system itself a bit more sustainable, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> I hate this one idea because it strikes me that you need you need a whole raft of, of, of different policies, if you like, to come together. But I mean, I think I think for me, if, if I had to say one thing within Europe, please look across the borders. Um, it, uh, particularly to the less disadvantaged people in the world in relation to farming, because many people uh, who are smallholder farmers are both net consumers of food, but, but actually producers of food. And I think we have to try and make sure that we're not uh, having a completely insular debate within Europe about what we're doing here without taking account of, of, uh, yeah, of other people in the world and, and how our actions are likely to impinge on those. Now, to put that under one policy is not so easy, I think. It's more saying, whenever we're declaring policies, let's hold them up to the light and think about what are their broader implications of these policies before we make that next step. And I think in the past, what we've seen is, is a sort of knee-jerk reactions of policy to, to one signal and then another without actually getting the stability of policies you need to allow agriculture to develop and to thrive. Ken Giller, thank you very much uh, for joining us today from Wageningen. My pleasure, really. My pleasure indeed, Robert. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our next episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app, as well as on Twitter at Forum for Ag for updates on this podcast, news, as well as forum events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.